You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is lecture number 10 in our series on the theology of the Old Testament. Number nine, the previous one, we began dealing with the prophets, continuing our discussion of the prophets rather. And so this one also is in the area of the prophecy. The rest of them will be that. We're going to deal today with the prophecy of Daniel, the last of the major prophets. Then we'll take up Hosea and Joel and Amos. So we'll do four prophets for this particular lecture. So the first one then that we take up is the prophet Daniel. Daniel is a prophecy of 14 chapters and the book is written as taking place during the time of the exile in Babylon, which was between 587 and 537 before Christ. But detailed information concerning the reign of the Greek king Antiochus IV and Epiphanes 173 to 164 about the time of the Maccabees indicates that this book was written about 165 before Christ. The author of it is unknown. Now through a series of stories about the wisdom of Daniel and his visions, the author says that God is the master of history, which he directs to the goal he has set for it. He further affirms that those who trust in God and avoid all forms of idol worship will be blessed by God. And if this blessing does not happen in this life, the faithful one will be blessed in the next life. There is the added notion that the idol worship of the Gentiles is vain and stupid. The prophecy of Daniel is unlike the other prophecies because it's about stories and visions and uh, there's no direct prophecy and condemnation of nations and so forth like you find in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. It starts off with six stories about Daniel and his three companions with those difficult names, the ones that end up in the furnace and are not burned. So through these stories about the wisdom of Daniel and his visions, the author tells us that God is the master of history. He further affirms that those who trust in God and avoid all idol worship will be blessed by God. These first stories are about Daniel and his three companions, Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah. They're all chosen for service in the household of the Babylonian king. They want to feed them the same food that is used by the pagans. And Daniel says, no, we don't want to eat that food. Just give us vegetables and water and we'll be okay. And the one who's taking care of them says, oh, if you lose weight and something happens to you, I'll lose my head. And they say, no, let's try it out for 10 days and see how everything goes. So during that time, they don't have any meat or those things that are sacrificed to idols, just vegetables that are not sacrificed to idols. And after 10 days, they look more vigorous and stronger and more healthy than all the other young men in the court of the king. So that's one indication of the wisdom of Daniel, Daniel and that God is guiding him in his life. The king has a dream and none of his magicians can interpret the dream. 
Daniel interprets the dream for him and is honored as a result of that. Next, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the Babylonian king in this story, makes a huge statue of gold and commands everybody to adore it. His three companions refuse to do that, and so they're cast into the fiery furnace. And of course, the angel protects them, and they're seen walking around inside the fire, singing the praises of God. And so you have the long canticle of praise of sun and moon and stars, rain, ice and snow and sand and heat, all of those things bless the Lord in the third chapter of Daniel. This is the psalm sung by these three individuals in the heart of the furnace. Later, there's a special banquet in which the sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem are used. And this is where the mysterious hand comes on the wall and writes three words, Mene, Tekel, and Farzin. And nobody can interpret those except Daniel. And he says that those three things mean measured, weighed, and divided. And that very night, the king is killed by the Persians and another king comes and takes his place. So you have a series of stories about Daniel and his three companions. This is followed in the next chapters by five visions that Daniel has. One of them, he sees that the king is going to become like a beast eating things of the ground, eating grass and so forth as an indication he's going to be insane for seven years and that comes about and then he's finally restored. This book is a book of protest. It's a book for martyrs during the time of the persecution of the Jews under Antiochus and Epiphanes IV from 173 down to 164 before Christ. It's also a type of what's known as apocalyptic literature where this wild images of the elements of the sun, the moon, and the stars do unusual things. This is a way of interpreting events that take place on earth. The last book of the Bible is called the book of Apocalypse, or the book of Revelation. It also has revelations like that and uses that kind of imagery, some of it taken from this book of Daniel. So here we have also in chapter 12, Daniel sees that after a period of trials, the dead will rise, some to life everlasting and some to suffering. And here we have the first expression in the Old Testament, about 165 before Christ, of belief in the resurrection from the dead of both the good and the wicked. The last part of Daniel, chapters 13 and 14, have very interesting stories about Susanna and the two wicked old men who try to seduce her and she rejects that. And they're going to kill her for, they accuse her of having an affair with a young man. And so Daniel is brought as judge to decide. He quizzes these two men and finds out they contradict each other and that they're lying. And so what they had planned for Susanna to have her killed, this same thing happens to them. They are the ones that are executed. She's a woman of virtue. And Daniel proves that in spite of his youth. This is an indication of the wisdom of Daniel. So the book of Daniel is kind of like a wisdom book also. This wisdom he has not from himself, not from study, not from books, but it's a gift that's given to Daniel by Almighty God so that he can judge and interpret dreams of what's true and what's false. So the book of Daniel then, written in a time of persecution in language that the persecutors wouldn't understand, is a book of resistance. It's a book of martyrdom. And chapters 7 to 12 recount these visions of Daniel 
and this is a form, as I said, of apocalyptic literature. This type of literature of Daniel uses symbols and bizarre figures of imagination in order to explain the unfolding of God's plan in this world. It predicts a final intervention of God into human history, which will take the form of judgment. In the seventh chapter, Daniel used the expression, son of man. He says in chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom which shall not pass away. This is a vision of the future of the Son of Man. And this Son of Man is interpreted in the New Testament, this particular text, as uh, applying to Christ our Lord. And Jesus called himself the Son of Man, referring back to this vision of Jesus coming at the end of the world on the clouds of heaven with his angels to judge the living and the dead. So we have that very strong image of the Son of Man from chapter 7 in Daniel. This then is a prediction of the triumph of the church, which is the mystical body of Christ, and the triumph of Christ over all of his enemies. And in the last two chapters, it has to do with idol worship again, Bell and the dragon. Daniel defeats all of that and shows that the gods of the pagans are nothing. There's only one God, that is the God of Israel. And twice in this book, uh, he runs into difficulty and he's cast into the um, den of lions. So it's Daniel in the lion's den and the lions are not fed anything for three or four days, but they don't touch Daniel because he's protected by God. God's the master of history. And towards the end of the book, when the king comes and sees that he's untouched, and the people who had accused him, Daniel is taken out of the lion's den. They don't touch him. The ones that accused him, his enemies are thrown into the lion's den and they're all devoured immediately by the lions. The book of Daniel then is more like a wisdom book. It's not very much like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. The next prophet we want to deal with now for the rest of this series, for this lecture and the next two, are going to be the last 12 books in the Bible who are called the Minor Prophets. The first ones we're going to take up today are Hosea, Joel, and Amos. These prophets are called minor because their prophecies are very short. One of them has only 21 or 22 verses, three chapters maybe. Many of them have three chapters. A couple of them have 14 chapters, Hosea and Zechariah, but in general, they're short prophecies. Now, it's important to remember, again, as I said before, in all of these prophets, that they're dealing with the social and the political situation of the time in which they live. And that's certainly true of the prophet Hosea, who prophesied around 740 before Christ. Amos is the first of the prophets, but in the Bible, Hosea comes first. Why that is, I don't know. But Hosea comes first, then Joel, then Amos, Amos prophesied around 760, 750. Hosea is more or less a contemporary of Amos, and he came, as I say, in 740. This is in the north, in Israel, where the kingdom of Israel is still existing, and Samaria is the capital, which was destroyed in 721. 
by the Assyrians. So the theme of this particular book is a very attractive book because the theme is the love and fidelity of the Lord Yahweh to his people. And this love is exemplified in the marital situation and the problems of Hosea and his wife Gomer. That's his wife's name, kind of unusual name, G-O-M-E-R, Gomer. Now, Gomer is unfaithful to her husband. She has other lovers. So he divorces her. But later, he relents when she's in dire straits. He relents and he takes her back, but not before disciplining her. The marital trials of Hosea then are used by him as a symbol of the relationship between God and Israel. The falling away from the true worship of God in the Bible and worshiping idols is called adultery or fornication. Now this actually happened in the life of the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer. He forgives her and takes her back and restores her. That's a symbol of the same thing with Yahweh and his people who fall away from him. He punishes them, they're disciplined, they repent, and then he takes them back. So the beauty of this is Hosea uses this experience, which was a life experience of the prophet. He sees in that a symbol of the relationship between God and his people Israel, who are again and again unfaithful. So he uses the marital relationship. This is a very bold image in the Bible, and Hosea is the first one to use the marital relationship between a husband and a wife as a symbol or sign of the relation of the love of God for his people, Israel, the chosen people. And that's why this stands out in the prophecy. This is the first three chapters. She has three children, and he gives them prophetic names of not my people, kind of negative names, and then he changes their names after his wife Gomer has repented of what she has done and returns to him. The prophet Hosea is very condemnatory of the sins of the people up in the north. He rebukes Israel for her crimes against God and the poor. He's very severe. He rebukes her for idolatry, for injustice, and for oppression of the poor and the defenseless. Now, like Amos, Hosea is a prophet of doom, but he balanced his condemnation of Israel with the promise of restoration and renewal. You always find that in the prophets. They denounce Israel, they prophesy destruction and disaster, but they always end on a note of hope and restoration. Once they come to their senses and repent of their sin, God will forgive them and restore them because out of them eventually is to come the Savior of the world, the Messiah. So they have to be protected and God is faithful to his word. And the key to understanding this prophecy of the first of the minor prophets, Hosea, is the story of the marriage to Gomer, the separation, and finally, the reconciliation. Now, what God expects of Israel, as Hosea says, is covenant love or steadfast love, chesed. This Hebrew word is chesed, merciful love, steadfast love, which involves both loyalty and fidelity. And he also wants them to know him in a way that includes commitment of mind and will. This is summed up in the famous quote of Hosea 6, 6, quote, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, 
rather than burnt offerings. Once again, the prophets moved towards interiority, to interiorize the Jewish religion rather than limiting it just to exterior sacrifices in the temple. That's not sufficient. There has to also be what the prophet says is the circumcision of heart and commitment to God completely. So then in the second part of the prophecy of Hosea, the condemnation of the surrounding countries, the curses on Edom, Moab, Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all these people. This is characteristic of most of the prophets. So there's a big series of that in chapters 4 to 14 in Hosea, where he denounces those around them. But the main thing to remember from Hosea is the marriage symbolism between Hosea and his wife Gomer as a symbol of the love that God has for his people, which is everlasting. But he does discipline them when they fall away into sin. The second minor prophet is Joel. And Joel is distinguished in the New Testament because in the very first sermon given by St. Peter in the second chapter of Acts, he quotes Joel about the pouring out of his spirit. I'm going to pour out my spirit on your sons and your daughters and your old men will dream dreams and so forth. This is taken from the second chapter of Joel. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. It's a beautiful image. And so St. Peter applies that to the ability of the apostles when they received the Holy Spirit from Christ after his ascension into heaven and sends them out to preach the gospel to all the world. This prophecy was written around 400 BC, shortly after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah for the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple. But it's before the world conquest of the Greeks of Alexander the Great in the fourth century. The dominant theme in Joel is the coming of the day of the Lord. Amos is the first one to come up with this notion of the day of the Lord. This means the visitation of the Lord when he's going to punish his people for their sins like the destruction of Samaria, the destruction of Jerusalem in 587. But the fullest sense of the day of the Lord is the coming of Christ in glory at the end of the world. So it has those two senses, a more a historical one, political one now, but sometime in the future, Christ is going to come again in glory, as we say in the creed, to judge the living and the dead. The fundamental meaning then is that God is the Lord of history and that he can and will intervene in the course of history in favor of his people, Israel. In the first sense, he will intervene in the current history. In the second sense is at the end of the world, as I said. Now, in the prophecy of Joel, you have it divided into two parts. The first two chapters deal with a severe plague of locusts that eat up everything. And that plague was most probably a true historical event of the times which was considered in the eyes of faith to be a punishment from God for the sins of the people. God always uses secondary causes to punish people. He doesn't send a bolt of lightning out of the sky. In this case, he uses locusts to eat up all their vines and all their wheat and all their corn and all their food, so take away all of their nourishment. That is probably a plague that happened, and he makes use of that to explain the relationship between Israel and his, of God and his people. The second two chapters, three and four, describe the messianic day of the Lord 
which is understood by the prophet as the end of history, the triumph of Judah and the punishment of our enemies when God comes to destroy the enemies of Israel and exalt Israel, which we have again in the book of Revelation of St. John, the last book in the Bible. So Joel sees the plague of locusts as a type or figure or foreshadowing of the eschatological or final intervention of God into human history at the end of the world. It is this idea of the foreshadowing of the end time which binds the two parts of the book of Joel together, four chapters, the first two dealing with the locusts and the second part dealing with the day of the Lord. Now what makes Joel stand out in the Bible is the graphic apocalyptic description of the day of the Lord with all these wild images. The nations will attack Israel, but they will be overcome by the power of God and will be punished. An outstanding aspect of the prophet's description of the new era is the pouring out of the Spirit, which I quoted at the beginning of Joel, that your sons and your daughters will, shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. The Spirit will be given to all the members of the community, but Joel understands this only with regard to Israel. So his vision is kind of restricted to Israel. And then there's a dominance also in the last part of the temple, which is characteristic of other prophets like Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Joel, the importance of the temple and the temple liturgy in Jerusalem, which is an indication that Joel perhaps belonged to the Levite or priestly families, since he's so concerned about that. The last prophet that we consider in today's lecture, then, is the first prophet to have a book named after him, Amos, A-M-O-S. Now, Amos was from Judea, but he was called by God to be a prophet to go up north and prophesy against the sins and the wickedness of the people in Israel and Samaria in the north. He's rebuked by one of the officials at the shrine up there in the north because he wasn't a professional prophet. And so here's how we find out something about Amos. In chapter 7, verse 14, Amos says, I am no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I am a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go and prophesy to my people Israel. Now, the prophecies of Amos were delivered during the reign of Jeroboam II, 786 to 746 before Christ at Bethel in the northern kingdom of Israel. Not in the south in Jerusalem, but up north in the kingdom of Israel when it still existed before it was destroyed in 721. About 760 or 750, something like that. He was actually a shepherd from Tycho in the south, near Judea, but he was called by God to be a prophet, sent north to go up to Bethel and proclaim these oracles against the wickedness up there. He's the most severe of all the prophets, most severe, in very strong and poetic language, from beginning to end, he condemns external religious ceremony and practice that camouflages social corruption and is not accompanied by internal conversion of heart to the Lord. So in the Old Testament, he's the prophet of social justice par excellence. And because of their empty worship and toleration of injustice, Amos prophesies that the Israelites in the north will be conquered and carried off into exile. And that's exactly what happened 
a few years later, about 40 years later in 721. So in the first chapters, he condemns the surrounding nations, but he also condemns Judea and Israel for their sins. Places like Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, he condemns all of them for their corruption. But especially Israel, which should know better because they're members of the covenant and followers of Moses. In the last part, chapter 7 to 9, the prophet describes five symbolic visions that indicate the destruction that's going to carry away Israel in a few years. So he's calling them for conversion, to convert, because the wrath of God is going to destroy them. They do not repent, and as a result of that, they are actually destroyed by the Assyrians in 721. So he emphasizes the day of the Lord. And for him, the day of the Lord is the coming of the Assyrians and the destruction of Israel, and eventually the coming of the Babylonians and destruction of Jerusalem in 587. So Amos instructed the people on how to interpret the coming Assyrian invasion as a punishment for their sins. It would be the fulfillment of God's word and would bring about divine punishment for injustice. But he still stresses the notion of the remnant. They'll be carried off into captivity, but a few will survive and they will come back and Israel will eventually be restored. So in this sense, even the most severe of all the prophets, he ends his prophecy on a hopeful note because of the promise that was made to David that he would always have successors on his throne. And through this remnant, the Messiah is going to come whenever it is, but sometime in the future. So it ends on a note of hope. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.